Can you hear me? I can. I can hear you. I hope you can hear you're me. You're right across from me. I'm like five. I'm <laughs> within the six-foot distance from yeah, you. So if I can't hear you, there's a problem. It's uh, different doing this in person. We did it once uh, before. We did. We made like a million Big Ten country jokes. I don't know if we're going to do that again. <laughs> uh, well, we've now shifted east of where we were previously, and yet we're still in Big Ten we're country. Big Ten country is Stems. the whole world. And, you know, after a, a long break, we are we are finally back. Uh, welcome to Run Pine Option, the college football podcast for two friends. Talk college football. Joining me as usual, and now in person for this special comeback episode, is my co-host, Carrie Crondard, live from Big Ten country. However, approximately 3,000 miles away from where your Big Ten team calls home. Uh, we're recording on March 6th, uh, live in Washington, D.C., uh, and it's been, a, it's been a minute. It's been uh, about six weeks. We took a nice little six-week vacation. Um, I think that that's going to be a thing moving forward after the season. We'll do a, an end-of-year recap, and then we'll take about six weeks off. But we are back. We are back with our promised every other week until the new season begins, and you may hear um, some ambient noise, uh, some cows mooing. It's just the tractors, right? <laughs> it's the corn growing, uh, although we're too early in the in the season to have uh, corn in the ground. Uh, you may hear some traffic. Uh, all is fine in Big Ten country, but uh, Terry, we are back. How does it feel to be back? It's good, yeah. No, it, it, you know, the end of football is always a strange thing. Uh, it kind of sneaks up on you, and then, you know, we talked about it. It's bittersweet. You have, you, you know, you're faced with weekends where you can actually do things now. At the same time, it, it, it does sort of leave a hole, and you're left uh, sort of pining the the forums for some sort of football news. But you know, we, we're starting to have the draft and, and expect evaluation. So there's always something. But um, yeah, it was a, it was a it was a quick six weeks. I'm I'm probably you know we'll get back into. Uh, rewatching some games from last year, which I start to do during the off season, and then we'll probably have spring football soon as well. So you know, it's there, there's always some sort of football. But yeah, we're ha- happy to be back here and uh, breaking things down or whatever it is you and I do. And of course, it's never too early, as I found out, uh, to put your season ticket deposits in. Thank you. All right. West Virginia for calling me and immediately getting me on the hook for the new season. Um, but alas, as you said, we are always in football season somewhere, especially with, uh, as we've talked about before, the transfer portal, the coaching carousel, and uh, pro days, the draft. And we're also we're also here live, not only in Big Ten country, but home of the DC Defenders of the XFL, and who I believe, two Spring Lakes, who I believe are uh, are leading leading the pack in the XFL. I've, I've, That's like leading the pack in the Pac-12, uh, <laughs> which UCLA can't do, but um. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, no. So I, I think they, they, they actually have games here. So I might go to one of those. I have not performed the, the XFL Super Bowl. What's the other spring league? Uh, the USFL is coming that, back for its second season. But it hasn't started. Yet. No, and uh, I was wondering if it was coming back or not. Uh, and don't ask me where the home games are for the teams because they're typically not in their home markets. Is it still in Birmingham? I think it's Birmingham, Canton, Ohio, and I want to say there's a third location, but. I couldn't tell you where. To me, that that's what like made the the USFL like so uninteresting. You know, on top of the level of uh, play that you know just didn't seem to have the distinct role variety that XFL had. You know, every game is in the same spot. You know, with no fans, and I think it's hard to 
But anyway, that's not what we're discussing. It is not what we're discussing. That's going to be for our future separate (laughs) podcast, solely dedicated to the USFL, which we'll see our ultimate listenership of that's 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 nine plunge. That's where we're really going to make our money. That is, as they say, spring football is where the money is to be made. Just ask Donald Trump. that one. Um, remember, you can send us an email. We are, once again, taking emails and correspondence right to runpintoption at gmail.com or leave a voicemail by clicking the anchor.fm link in the show notes and maybe actually, uh, now that we're back, we'll actually start some social media. Uh, but email is the main way to find us, runpintoption at gmail.com. Uh, share your thoughts. We will share them on air. But, Carrie, as we said, we are not here to talk about the USFL nor the XFL. Um, do you know what we're talking about in our big return episode. Um, I believe we're talking about the ethics of football. We are talking about the Which ethics is, of football. And I studied ethics in college. It's the one thing I'm, I'm capable of doing is, is, is analyzing ethical situations. So if you my, missed us... My one skill. Here comes a 45-minute lecture on the <laughs> philosophy of the ethics of football. Um, but Terry, you're right. We're talking about the ethics of football, and we're talking about this um, in part. Uh, we decided to talk about this after the DeMar Hamlin. Right. And and for those who think this is random, that we were going to record during that week, and then it just sort of fell away from us. And then we took a six-week vacation. (laughs) Uh, But we are returning back to this, um, and we're talking about the ethics of football, and it's something that I think um, many of our nine listeners will identify as an issue. Um, You know, we know that football as a sport is a brutal sport that ultimately you have... You know, almost 100% chance of having brain damage. CTE has, of course, over the last decade um, come to the forefront. We know that, um, as we've discussed many times on, on this, the unpaid, uncompensated, mostly black players playing for uh, white coaches or white administrators who typically make the money, although that has started to change, um, the amateurism model of the NCAA rooted in, um, you know, racist legacies. Um, And I think on top of it, too, you have, you know, as we've seen this realignment, you see hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars in these new media contracts given to these conferences um, for institutions that ultimately are supposed to be academics first, um, and yet we're seeing, as we've discussed, UCLA and USC um, are going to ship their student-athletes 3,000 miles away for away games uh, starting next year. And so there's there's a whole lot of ethical issues that go into football, and yet not only do we come back and our listeners come back and we watch week after week after week on Saturdays and Sundays, um, but as we have discussed and is the thesis of much of this podcast, Football, and college football in particular, plays such an important cultural um, point in our society that the ethics of football are so intertwined with the identity of who we are as people and how we represent ourselves that we kind of just, I don't want to say we put the dirty part of the ethics under a rug, but we kind of just put it in the rearview mirror and we continue to move forward down what is ultimately some, especially non-sports watchers, will be quick to grasp on and say um, is a terrible, horrible thing that doesn't justify mm-hmm. the identity and uh, the people don't understand it. So I think this is this is a big issue that yeah. we're trying to break down in this 40-minute 
uh, then where do you want to start? Well, it's hard to know where to start because there are just so many, you know, ways in which this sport is, is, is largely unethical. And, you know, that it's not just because of football. A lot of it is just because it's a, it's a big, powerful industry uh, and a lot of, you know, big, powerful, wealthy industries um, have issues with accountability and corruption. Um, I mean, you, you did a good job mentioning, you know, a, a lot of the key issues. Um, you know, another thing is the, the empowerment of, you know, it's essentially, you know, players that engage in, you know, sexual assault, even even murder, Ray Lewis, you know. Um, Aaron Hernandez. Jameis Winston, Deshaun Watson most recently, and, you know, that you see how that stuff gets covered up with coaches as well at Michigan State, at Michigan, you know, at all these Penn schools. Penn State. Yeah, at all these schools, really. Um, so there, there are just so many issues, it's hard to know where to start, um, you know, and you see it on both levels, the NFL and the billionaire owners, the race norming of concussion settlements. Um, but at its core, the, the main thing about football is that it is a violent sport. It is at its core, 11 players, but especially on the offensive line, those five just ram into each other again and again and again. Um, and it leaves players injured and in pain for life. I mean, it, you know, and we just take for granted, oh, like this guy's injured, you know, he'll be back because it's, it's just part of the game, right? You know, it's part of the game to get hurt. Um, but these are real people and they're people whose lives exist beyond the football field. And uh, once they retire, you know, despite, um, you know, football careers are only, you know, one to three years, essentially, um, if you're not a big time player. And so uh, it's really life changing stuff and in the same way, you know, the socioeconomic aspects of it, it's, you know, really for a lot of, you know, particularly uh, African-American people, you know, the only way for them to you know, get out of poverty and, and to, you know, have a career. Um, and there's also just, you know, the social justice aspect and with Colin Kaepernick, how they tamp down on that, you know, th there's so much to go into, but yeah, at, it, at its core, football is a game of violence for entertainment. It is the modern day version of, you know, the gladiator fights and those massive coliseums. It is a spectacle. It is a cultural phenomenon. Um, and it is, it is one that is deeply rooted in violence that we, um, be put aside for for our enjoyment, and and I think it's for, it's an escape for a lot of people too. It's an escape from you know day to day life. You know, there's nothing like just a Saturday, you know, going to a football game and, and just in, embracing, you know, fully embracing and engorging yourself for three hours and that community and, and that level of passion and religion, almost essentially. So. Um, you know, I, I think, and 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 what's and what's hard with this discussion is like we know, we know more about football. We know what CTE is. We know how violent it is. And um, despite the fact that you know they are trying to find ways to make the game safer, um, it's it will always be a violent game because that is what it is at its core. And the players are bigger and stronger now than they used to be. You know, uh, you're getting these massive physical freaks come into the NFL. Um, and so, you know, even you, you can have safer helmets, you can lessen the hits on some level. And but, you know, we've seen we've seen NFL players in recent years, Demarius Thomas, Vincent Jackson, um, 
you know, tragically die from complications of CTE, whether it's drug addiction or suicide or something like that. And, you know, the scary thing about CTE is often it's not the big concussions. It's the repeated little hits. And you can't really do anything to avoid that. If you're playing football, um, those are going to occur. I think it's a significant question as to whether this sport will exist in 30 or 50 years. But the fact of the matter is, despite all this and despite us now knowing it, it is it is more institutionally powerful than it has ever been before. Um, I think, you know, you talked about the massive, massive, massive con TV contracts for college football. Um, we talked about during the pandemic how, you know, schools had to run college football in order to have money to survive because it subsidized so many other athletic departments. Um, and the fact that, you know, baseball used to be the American sport and now it is football. And, you know, the NFL is essentially untouchable. Something. I mean, they just rolled out a Super Bowl with a horrible field and, and, and it didn't even affect, you know, this stuff. We're still seeing record viewership for Michigan, Ohio State, for, for all these big games every year. So um, it's hard to grapple with the fact that, you know, we know all these things and yet uh, nothing, you know, fundamentally, it's hard to say that anything will change too much. So um, I'm happy to, you know, discuss it. I'll let you you know, give your take in a second here, but I think the question of whether it's ethical to, to continue to watch football is, is a legitimate one. And I think that's a question that uh, we're not going to come to an answer to because we've already come to an answer to, and that right. is, uh, no, but we're going to continue to watch football. Right. Um, and I think that, um, you know, to our conservative uh, listeners, yeah, congratulations, we're still going to listen, we're still going to watch football, um, <laughs> despite the fact that we think that there are ethical issues with it. Um so we're just virtue signaling. This is not cancel culture, <laughs> Terry. We are not canceling uh, football. But I think, you know, the second question then, if that is the answer to the first, uh, which that is the answer to the first question, um, the second question is, okay, well then, what do we do about it? And one of the parallels I draw on it, we talk a lot about, you know, comparison to soccer, but I think there's a big lesson to take here. You know, I, NASCAR is back. I happen to be a NASCAR fan. I think there's actually a really important and big lesson um, to take from what happened in NASCAR previously. And I think that the DeMar Hamblin episode um, presents the opportunity if football and led by the NFL, um, but also it could be led at the college level with a new NCAA president, um, if they're willing to take. And that is, you know, in 2000 and 2001, um, NASCAR had two deaths on track. Uh, Adam Petty, who is the grandson of the greatest uh, racer of all time, um, and then Dale Earnhardt Sr., who arguably is the second greatest racer um, of all time, most definitely in the top five. Um, and Dale Earnhardt died in what was the equivalent of the Super Bowl um, on the last lap of the Daytona 500 in 2001. And that those two deaths, and particularly Dale Earnhardt Sr.'s death, um, made the entire NASCAR racing community have to embrace safety in a way that they hadn't before. And that's not to say that there wasn't safety considerations. There are. But the inherent danger of auto racing is that you're driving a car at 200 miles an hour. Right. In the same way that there is the inherent danger of football that you will have concussions and you will have um, traumatic injuries and that you, as you well pointed out, it is these small hits that add up um, that we know that lead to some of the most devastating long-term problems, including CTE. And so while DeMar Hamlin's episode was, by all accounts, um, 
a freak incident, and you did see safety play out in terms of the response times, the reason that there are the personnel that there are, are in the field and they're able to respond so quickly, undoubtedly saved his life. It also opens up, much like Dale Earnhardt Sr.'s death did, a chance to stop and say, how can we make this sport that is an, that is inherently dangerous, inherently brutal, and has inherent things that cannot go away, much like auto racing and crashes, how can we make it a little bit safer every step of the way? And to NASCAR's credit, over the 22 years since, the safety innovations that came about, and they're continuing every single year um, to build on them, um, has meant that there hasn't been another on-track death since Dale Earnhardt Sr., and that's really testament to the fact that the entire community embraced it. You know, football had um, has had moments um, where concussions have come to the forefront, but they quickly seem to be yeah, dispensed with. They dissipate, yeah. And they dissipate. And you don't want to see, you know, would it take an on-field death or would it take the death, uh, you know, a tragic death of one of the greatest of all time um, to highlight? I think even then, I mean, we've seen it. And you've seen, um, again, it dissipate and it be dispensed with. It, we haven't had an on-field death, thank God, but we have had college players die. Um, and training and, and conditioning. There's about one every season that dies throughout the levels, and yet we still haven't seen these changes. And so I think the ethics of it are, what are we going to do about it? Well, we have to start to really embrace some of these safety changes, whether it be the soft helmets, which we know reduce concussions. Um, the If you've seen them, they're the weird-looking things that go over top the regular helmets that NFL teams will wear during training camp. They won't wear it in play. Um they probably won't wear it in play because it looks weird. Is it like is it like the, the helmets that act like sort of a bumper? Like yeah, the front the, of a car? exactly. Like, yeah. They act like bumpers. You know, and there are other things. Obviously, we've seen things. It's controversial. The targeting rule to the point where the targeting rule that was implemented for safety has been more implemented for complaining and gamesmanship. And actually, you know, the spirit of the rule doesn't carry over to real safety because you never get targeting on an offensive running back who puts his head down and right. runs forward. But you do on a defensive. Right. But it, it's embracing. I think the rule changes, it's embracing the safety equipment that's available, it's continuing to revolutionize it, and some of it is changing the way that the game is played. But, you know, within the ethics, too, um, this is going to be a generational thing where we know that participation in football is changing and younger kids. Yeah. We know that tackle football has essentially been recommended to not happen until you get to high school. Right. And maybe it doesn't happen in the next five years, but over the next 10 to 20 years, um, you're going to see that dramatic kind of player pool and the players that come up and have learned the game differently um, will start to change the game and then the game will have to react to it and incorporate more safety changes. But the fact is that we have to be more proactive in the way that we're doing this. We have to embrace the safety protocols and the safety innovations that have happened to the extent that NASCAR did after Dale Earnhardt Sr. died. And that's the only way that ethically, I think, you know, football can move forward. Um, but beyond ethics, it's the only way as a sport speaking of that next generation, is going to continue right. in 30 years. If I had kids, I wouldn't let them play football. I don't know my kids aren't playing. I, I, you know, I would like to participate um, in terms of doing volunteer stuff or paid stuff, whatever, in high school football, but I won't coach high school football yeah. because I don't think that 
I want to be part of the system that leads to kids wrecking their brains, refereeing maybe, but the fact is that this is this is going to be an inflection point, and you have to get in front of the inflection point if you're going to survive. The NFL has been entirely too reactionary um, in terms of trying to discount the science, and, and things have to change, and it's both from an ethical standpoint, but again, from the standpoint that if we're going to see football as a sport survive over the next 50 years, um, they have to start being more proactive. It's just hard because... You know, the, the ownership, the, the way the sport is set up is you have, we talked about sort of the slave mentality. Uh, you, have, you have, you know, black players who are either unpaid in college. Yes, there's NIL, but that only affects, you know, the best players. And that still doesn't come with any sort of work benefits um, and or underpaid and in, uh, in the NFL where you don't, you know, it's I think the only sport that doesn't have full guaranteed contracts. Um, and, and the ownership doesn't, you know, the fans, most of the fans are white and conservative and they view the sport as, as opposed to where you and I view it, the reality of the sport as these guys are giving up their body for us, fans view it as they would, be, as the players would be nothing without the fans because the fans are paying money, even though they're just sitting on the couch doing nothing. You know, people really do view it as sort of a slave mentality. I mean, that you saw a lot of that with like the Colin Kaepernick and the just sort of shut up and dribble kind of mentality. Um, and the NFL... I know this is a college football podcast, but, you know, the, the NFL is where a lot of these issues... Have oh, it trickles down. Yeah, have at least been more publicized. And the thing with the NFL is they don't... They're, they're more interested in publicity than they are in actually solving the issues. So they try to, you know, they try to solve this in the wrong way, right? Like, they'll be like, oh, you know, we're going to call more roughing the passer, but, like, the problem is not the quarterbacks. They're the most protective. Or, or uh, you know, we're going to have more concussion protocol, but then when it really matters... Uh, you know, you have Tua almost, like, get three concussions in a year, and, and he's not taken off the field because it's an important moment in an important game, right? So um, I, I agree that – so it's just, it's just you know, like any capitalist system, it's hard to, you know, not get discouraged. I think it's a good point you made. I agree with you that, you know, it's going to have to be a next-generation thing. We know next-generation is, is, is generally more liberal. And, um, I also I think fundamentally, and, and and I don't know the details of this, but I think fundamentally the NFL just the players they need better union. They need better unions. I mean, the the reason baseball players get so much paid so much more is uh, their their unions are more powerful. I don't think Demora Smith has done a very good job in the past decade or so. I mean, they got pretty much nothing out of the lockout. Um, they kind of put more energy into defending. Uh, Deshaun Watson than they did any, you know, player injuries or anything. So I think that's something that has to change. And if you're going to make the decision that, uh, you know, um, that football, that again, again, I think, I, I think it's probably the most ethical decision to, to just disengage. But if you're not going to do that, I think you have to use your platform to, um, you know, spread your voice, whether it's on a small level, like you and I are doing, you know, I'm, a sports writer, and I hope to, you know, eventually get a big enough platform to do that. But you, see, you know, you see someone like Mina Kimes who constantly is talking about, you know, the more problematic issues of football, and, and that crew at ESPN with with Marcus Spears uh, and you know Dan Orlovsky, even him sometimes, you know, they're they're pretty good with that. So I think it's it's about stronger unions, it's about the next generation taking a stand, having a voice, and, and just keeping the pressure on these institutions, and, and you know, because they are responsible for pressure. I mean, let's not forget that. Um, you know, after the got a, a crop duster. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, let's not forget that after you know 
after the George Floyd protests, uh, the NFL immediately did a 180 with Colin Kaepernick and Black Lives Matter. Now, you know, none of that stuff has, was significant and had any staying power, but um, sometimes mass protest movements are what you need, and, and you need to understand that, like, I know you as more of a history buff than I am, that it is, you know, often a step forward, a step back sort of thing. This is something gradual that happens over decades. It's not going to happen overnight. But, you know, understanding, I think, as a fan that, you know, if you are going to make the decision to watch football, that you, you know, you have a responsibility to, you know, put your voice out there. And, and on top of that, just, you know, understanding that, like you said, for the survival of the sport, those changes are continued to be implemented. But it is still, it, it's still something that, you know, we're a long way from, and, and it's hard to, it's hard to say that it will change. Yeah, and I think if we um, we relate this, you know, as you said, we're talking a lot about pro footballness, but that's because ultimately the NFL, for as big as the contracts are for media rights for college football, the conferences, the NFL is a, a whole different, you know, ball game. Um, I think we have a second crop duster. Uh, but the way, you know, to think about this when we talk about college football, too, is we're seeing a lot of the same things. You point out the unions and the NFLPA. We know that there is a movement among some college football players. Um, particularly, we've seen this play out at Northwestern really predominantly, um, both to be considered uh, employees of the yeah. colleges yeah. and then, um, you know, the ability to, to then possibly, whether that be unionized or whatever, um, but to have some, you know, uh, protections to be able to be offered health insurance, not just while you're in school. I, I don't think people realize that, you know, these players that are given, you know, scholarships, um, their health insurance it, with the university ends when they're done. And so, you know, despite the fact that, so what, you've played six years, you got a master's degree and a college degree, you come out, um, and then you're going to be left with 50 years of pain. Yeah. And the university doesn't have any liability at that point. DNCAA doesn't have any liability at that point. They offer no money to help um, with future wear and tear, uh, whether that be, you know, you have bad knees or whether that be you have a traumatic brain injury. So, and similarly in the NFL, you get five years, which is more than zero, but it's, you know, it should be, it should be life. I mean, you go to the, you go to the army, you get, you get insurance for life, right? I mean, it's, um, you know, people are going to say, oh, Football is the same as the army. No, of course it's not. But you're you're still but, but, putting your body on the line. And the, the point, point. Yeah, and the point is, and, and to the employee point, and this is you know, there's a whole legal thing in it, which we'll talk about in a future episode on the NLRB case and different stuff. But like, you know, at the end of the day, the Big Twelve just signed a new media deal. Okay, the new media deal is going to give every Big Twelve school thirty-one million dollars a year. Mm -hmm. What those schools are being paid for is for the games, whether it be football or basketball or volleyball or baseball, to be put on television, on streaming, and the players are the ones that are producing those games. They are producing the work product. They are literally the ones that are being the producers of the good. Um, and so to, to, you know, again, you would see... And any other thing that isn't college sports, um, they be considered as employees. Football players are employees of their NFL teams. Right. Period. Um, 
And so when we talked about the ethics of that, not only is that on a, on a moral level unethical, but it has the long-term implications of, you know, health insurance, of retirement, of all of these things that don't exist. There is no contractual obligations beyond the scholarship obligation, um, which, depending on the school, doesn't even carry over if you get injured. Uh, most schools are, are good on that. Um, so... You know, again, these are things that are easy to change, easy to embrace. And the fact of the matter is there's the money to do so. Right. There is the money to do so. But as you point out, and, um, you know, UCLA, we've talked about it before, but it's an excellent example. Instead of investing in the product uh, and investing in the employees or the players um, to make sure that they benefit from it, um, Instead, schools like UCLA are forced to join a new conference in order to make an extra $25 million a year because they're laden with debt. No, and they have the money. I mean, it's, it's in the same way, you know, people say, like, you know, oh, we don't have the money to expand Medicaid or whatever. Uh, it's like we spend a jillion dollars, which is not even a real number, but that's how much we spend on, you know, military planes that will never get off the ground right and it, you know it's 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 what you do with the money and what you're willing and, and it's similar with college football people you know you see a lot of schools talk about like uh we need this endowment for, and you end up just building you know some new facility new facility that was unnecessary now facilities are important on some level but you know the, if you have there's a point where you you don't need to keep upgrading them and you can give that money to the players so i totally agree with you and i think um you know, going back to your point about, you know, generational change, I think you are seeing that in that players are growing up and starting to understand, you know, we've seen Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields talk about, I think Trevor Lawrence came out and said, or, or one of them came out and said, you know, like, we should get a cut of the TV money, like, and and also coaches, right? I mean, you, you look at uh, a guy like John Gruden versus a guy like Brandon Staley and his response to the John Gruden comments, or, you know, uh, a guy like... Uh, Brian Kelly versus, um, you know who you know. you know who does get a cut of that TV money, Terry? Brian Kelly, and it's ten million dollars yeah. a year from LSU. They get a cut of that TV money. It's ridiculous. And and Brian Kelly versus Marcus Spears, for example, not Marcus Spears, Marcus Freeman, or just you know coaches coaches with the Dabo Sweeney attitude that like we, you know, it's entitlement to, to pay players. I think, like you said, the more that you have former players becoming coaches at younger ages, the more. Um, that they are going to be able to put their voice in the room. But, you know, fundamentally, going back to the NFL for some, for some you know, the players make the product, as you said, and, and at some point you wonder, like, it, it won't happen, but it, part of you is just like, they don't need the league. Like, why can't they just, you know, if they all decided one day to stop playing, like, and make their own league, like, theoretically, they, well, <laughs> they can and, do that. But you, know? you, make, you make a point, you know, that might sound crazy to people, Um but we see the a mini revolution happening in the NBA, not that's going to, you know, make college basketball obsolete, but we are seeing some of the best high school stars because you have to spend at least a year between high school um, before you can be drafted in the NBA. There's now um, two things. One is uh, Overtime Elite, which is a whole different league. Um, 
It's, uh, you know, you sign a contract essentially for a year. I think that you can even go to it in high school as an elite prospect. I'm not positive. Um, and they make, you know, there's a, a minimum salary that they make and the top prospects play against each other in this league. I think that their finals and stuff are going on now. But you also, you have, you have the G League, which is the development league for the NBA. There's a team in the G League that is specifically um, people who are not eligible yet to be in the NBA, um, but they are foregoing college, and right. they are choosing to play in the G League. You have to be invited to the team, making, I think it's either $250,000 or $500,000 minimum salary, playing against the other G League teams, and those are just out-of-high-school players who need that one-year of eligibility who then become draft-eligible. And those two things have popped up in the last two to three years. So, and that is a form of that. Yeah. That is a form of the best players in the, yeah. that are going to be in the NBA choosing to forego college. Maybe that changes now with NIL, but probably ultimately not. Um, choosing to forego college, forego essentially free labor in order to cash in on the product when they should be able to because they are producing the product. And it's insane. It's ins I mean, NBA, I think, is, is much more progressive than the NFL because of, you know, the ownership and, you know, NFL is unique because you have conservative owners, conservative viewers, and, and black players. Where baseball, you know, it's you don't have it's more conservative. You know, you have, you have white players more. So, I mean, yes, there's Latino players as well, but they get they get paid well in baseball, right? You don't really have those sort of labor issues, and then you know, in basketball, you have like you know, it's a more liberal ownership and liberal viewership as well. You know, so football is really the only sport where you have this clash between owners, viewers, and players. But no, I agree. I mean, when you look at college football, the fact that, you know, a high school player needs to have three, three years three years of, of un, unpaid labor to go to the NFL is crazy. The fact, the fact that we don't have a minor league in football is, is crazy. And I think... We were just talking about the XFL and USFL. Right, right, right. Sure. Um, but that's a supplemental league, right? Like, I mean, that's a different thing, you know? And I think it's a good thing as well, but, um, yeah, I mean, the fact that there's the only way to get to the NFL is to play at least three years in college. You don't have to play all three. I mean, you can, but, but, but even so, um, again, and that's just a way that it's just sort of a single pipeline. And, you know, if there was some way like the, the NCAA or, you know, the NFL could be broken up, like, cause it is very monopolistic, um, in that sense, but, uh, it's, that's, that's just what it is right now. You know, um, it's interesting. One, industry that uh just got quiet all the crop dusters i guess uh made their way past you know an industry i've always compared uh football to and you know this is going to be controversial but no one listens to us so who cares um is is the porn industry and put aside whatever you think about porn the act itself just look at the industry that is the only other industry i can think of and there's wrestling too i guess not the fake kind, but that is like MMA sort of thing. But that is the only industry where people put their bodies on the line um, for the entertainment of the viewer and are not are going to leave it, you know, average one. Same thing as football. Average six months to one year, you're going to last. And then you're going to um, you're probably joining because you need the money more than anything else. And, and you're going to be left sort of um, with either reputational for porn, obviously, but, but more so bodily injuries for the rest of your life. And there's no insurance. We've seen, you know, people sort of understand that the porn industry is too big to fail, but we've seen it get a lot safer in recent years because of things like OnlyFans, because of, you know, people within the industry are saying they want more power over the content they create and they want to be able to create that content as opposed to being dictated 
on that content by owners. Now, obviously, you can't, you know, make football from your house. You need to participate in the game. But, you know, at the end of the day, are there ways for, you know, players to essentially put their foot down and say, you know, we, we demand to be treated better than this, you know? I think, like you said, it's it's possible, and those are sort of the conversations we need to continue continue to be having, both on the field with the players and with the fans as well, and just like kind of open our minds to like thinking outside of the box of the typical like college football NFL pipeline. And you know, I don't want us us to um, gloss over the fact that if you compare football today, including player empowerment, to football you know, forty years ago. Right. Um, that we haven't taken serious steps around player empowerment and right. safety. We have, undoubtedly. Um, I, I don't, you know, I think if we think of some of the older coaches, um, I don't think that Lou Holtz, for example, <laughs> would be held in as high regard today. Um, and that's not saying that there aren't coaches out there that have serious problems, but we've also seen coaches be lose their jobs. Uh, and we talked about this with Mike Leach um, as an example. Um, Derry Patterson. Derry Patterson, prior to um, Mike Leach's passing away. But, you know, if a story came out today that a coach locked a player in the we have crop duster again, um, I think that one, that one's for soybeans. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but if we had a story come out today that uh, a a major coach locked his player who was suffering a concussion in a dark room as punishment. Um, I don't know that the the media story would not end with that coach being fired. I think it would. And we saw that at Maryland um, with a prior coach when a player died during training and conditioning. That, that coach is now at another team, but Maryland uh, parted ways with him. Um, so I think that we have made you know, let's just say strides with player empowerment. We've made strides with um, understanding that football go that these the players are not disposable. We have made strides in Absolutely. that, but that is also to say um, there are things that exist today that would make football safer and more ethical right. um, that have not been embraced. And sure, we have an IL now. Um, there's an argument to be made that not having any regulations on NIL is actually making some players worse off, sure. I think. Um, the fact that you were not willing to take those steps to put regulation or use the safety equipment available that we've already discussed or make rule changes or, you know, change the way that we do practice, change the way right. we schedule games. Um, when it when it potentially impacts you know the status quo of power and for some of these and teams money. And, and money yeah. we see you know safety concerns come up. I'm thinking about the decade long why we can't have an expanded playoff is because well we don't want players having to play an extra two right. games. Well that wasn't the reason why it's because people didn't get the cut of the pie that they wanted until now. But that's all to say that if we're we've made strides, but to really embrace the things that already exist is the only way that football can become a more ethical game while also still recognizing that inherently it's always going to have ethical issues. But if you make that more of an informed consent and truly allow people to make the decisions to say, these are the 10 things that are going to happen to you if you play yeah. this game. It is up to you to play right. this game. Um, if you choose to, then that makes it 
I think a more, if we're talking about philosophical ethics, a more yeah. ethical thing. Yeah, and of course, you know, if you want to really look at the big picture, there's the fact that, like, why are, you know, black communities, why is this the only way for them to get out of poverty, like, as well? But that, you know, that's a bigger discussion. But yeah, no, I agree. It definitely has gotten better. I mean, people did used to die on the football field. That, that has happened before. Not recently, not, you know, during the modern NFL era, but, like, you know, back back a century ago, you know, I mean, I mean, this, this, ha this has happened before. Um, so, and, and again, like you said, maybe, maybe, maybe that, that is what, you know, it would take for some rapid change to happen. Who knows? Um, but, uh, yeah, I just lost my train of thought. No, I, but, you know, I think, but, uh, uh, but, but, but another thing is that like, you know, the NFL just expanded the regular season and the playoff. Like if the NFL was serious about inj injuries, they wouldn't do that. They'd get rid of Thursday night football because, like, playing playing a football game on half a week's rest is close to impossible. Um, you know, I mean, most of you talk about people who play, and most of you know the first half of the week is spent, if not the entire week, is spent just rehabbing. Right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's not the NFL is not like something where there's active practice every week. Well, and, and if we talk about college teams, um, again, one of the basic things, if you don't take it seriously, you're not going to ship any of your student athletes in any sport 3,000 miles to have to play a game oh, during an academic season. Yeah, no, that that is insane. And you know, it's there's less transparency at the college level. I mean, we, you know, you reminded me when you're talking about, you know, DJ Durkin and some of those circumstances. You look at, you know, the the reason Urban Meyer's tenure in the NFL didn't last outside of just not being a good coach and being in over his head is the fact that you know the culture he created was awful. He he abused his staff and he abused his players. I think you know there's a quote in the Athletic. Someone called it the most toxic culture I've ever been a part of, and this was coaches who said that too, not just players. Um, there's no reason to think that that's not how Urban Meyer ran Ohio State and Florida when he was a college coach, and there's no reason to think that that's not how um, a lot of college coaches run their programs. It's just it happens behind closed doors, so you don't hear about it in college football, and you can get away with it because because they're kids, right? Um, which is even more screwed up. But uh, that's another aspect of it. So if, if there's some way you can increase regulation, increase transparency in the NCAA, because right now it's just essentially a free for all where as long as you're not paying the players, you can do whatever you want. Absolutely. So ultimately, is football ethical? I mean, a clear, a clear answer here, is, as we said at the beginning, is, is no, it's not. But there are steps that can be taken um, and that should be taken right now that can make it a more ethical game uh, and get closer to, to that informed consent, um, you know, kind of star uh that we want to get and, to. And, and just when we're, I just also think of, you know, thinking about the NFL, that like, um, I just don't think much is going to change without a new commissioner, you know, mm. because Goodell, Goodell is there. I mean, Goodell's not, he's a tool, right? He is there because the owners understand that through him, they can do whatever they want and that they can maximize profit through him. And if enough pressure is put on him, he will at least try to make it look like he's making changes. But, you know, you, you need ethical leadership on some level. And I, I don't know, how, you know, I don't know. How they and I think it's, uh, you know, but the former commissioner had a level of that, that Goodell does. I agree. And, you know, to relate it to the NCAA and although we see the NCAA ultimately as hands off on, Commissioner FBS yeah. football, um, and so it falls to the conferences. Uh, you know, one thing is to actually have a, a commissioner, but the fact is that the NCAA president and the NCAA can decide 
Um, these are member schools. Every member of the FBS is a member school. All the other sports are regulated. Um, there is power there for the new NCAA president, Charlie Baker, former governor of Massachusetts, um, to be able to work with the conferences at the bare minimum um, or use actual hard power uh, to force teams and conferences to adopt more ethical, more safety um, rules around the game. And it's something that his predecessor, um, Emmert, did not do. Uh, very hands-off. Um, not a good NCAA president, in my opinion. Um, and yet, here we have. We have a new era of college sports across the board. Um, and despite the fact that the NCAA president does not have direct control over FBS football, um, there's a lot of potential ability to influence the future of the game, and it's at a point, you know, as this entire podcast alludes to, we're closing in on an inflection point. We're talking about there's a new era in college football that's emerging over the next two years, and with that is new le NCAA leadership, and the sport is, in general is at an inflection point where... Very much is, yeah. Are we going to see it in 50 years, as you said? And you, and use your voice. If you're a fan and, and you know, you, you think things aren't being done enough, you know, in any way you can, you know, make that known that, you know, you're a fan of football and you believe in an NFL product because at the end of the day, the reason, you know, they listen to conservative fans because they're louder than the, than the progressive ones. So so use your voice. If you if you can quit football and not, you know, <laughs> and feel good about it and, and not feel like there's a hole in your life, do it and talk about it. You know, more power to you. Still um, listen to this podcast. Yeah, yeah. I would, don't quit this podcast. That would be the most unethical thing you could do. Um, but... But, uh, but yeah, no, I'll make your voice heard. And any action um, is better than no action. And um, I did have one more thing I wanted to say. But Oh, yeah, but, you know, we're going to – this issue is going to come up a lot more with you and me in the podcast. It, it comes up pretty much every episode. So this is, you know, this is not the end. It will be all, like you said, there isn't really one answer to the problem. And it's a conversation that I think we as a society are going to continue having. But – also, you know, the, the brain impacts, we don't know that much about CTE, and we're, we're still learning about it. Um, that is another thing that could very much end the game of football. I mean, you, you see it in real life. You know, again, I don't want to, uh, you know, people say don't be an armchair psych uh, doctor. You know, you, you're seeing this with Antonio Brown, someone who was, who was deeply sick. And, um, you know, I saw, I saw a tweet that once said, you know, Antonio's brain is what's going to end this sport. You know, it, it, it could be, I mean, we're, the more players die, the more we're going to see the true impacts of this. So, um, the, you know, as much as people don't want to think about it, this is a topic that is not going away. No, it's absolutely not. You're right. Um, which means that it's something that we'll return to. It's good to be back. It's good to be in person. Uh, it's good to have the fresh farm air hitting us outside mm -hmm. here on this balcony, um, overlooking this beautiful pasture, <laughs> a brick wall of an apartment building that store. But um, no, it's good to be back. It's good to have this conversation. You're right. This is a conversation that's going to undoubtedly continue. I mean, we're explicitly talking about it here, but it's going to be implicit in so much that we talk about, and, and it's not going anywhere. Um, but, alas, this has been another episode of Run Pint Option. Thank you for making time in your podcast schedule for us. We will be back very soon with another episode. Remember, email runpineoption at gmail.com, and we will see you in two weeks. Just be another league. Fox loves on it. Fox take the NFL, right? And then, like, have. Isn't that the XFL that Fox has now? No, ESPN has the XFL. Yeah. So Fox take the NFL, and then.
split off into like the AFL or something like there used to be. And uh, and wait, what if we, what if we get rid of all of the rules, and allow like body slams on that in that lead, and we come up with the most ridiculous name. And we just make it the conservative sport. I mean, that's basically what the XFL 1.0 yeah, well, was. Well, as well as the XFL was, yeah, they tried to make it especially violent, and it lasted for a week before everyone was injured. Or even better idea: let's uh, let's let's give Nickelodeon full rights. The slime when they slime players after a touchdown on the screen. I want real life slime cameras. I, I want I want the slime to actually happen, not just have virtual.